This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The number nine. It's a number that represents tremendous power in American law. Nine Supreme Court justices inhabit the highest court in the land. It's been that way since the days of Ulysses S. Grant. But does it have to be? The Constitution is actually silent on just how many justices there should be. And certainly since Grant, there have been efforts to add more. Now, advocates on the left are eyeing the bench once again for a possible expansion. They see the Supreme Court as it stands as partisan and out of touch. Those opposed say expansion would prove catastrophic and cast into doubt the court's very legitimacy. So, in light of the emerging divide, we ask this question, should we expand the Supreme Court? Hi, everybody. I'm John Donvan. And this week, we're taking a critical look at the state of the Supreme Court a court that just handed down a series of monumental decisions. They were controversial, they were consequential. A year when the court ruled on abortion and gun rights and environmental protection and religion in public schools, just to name a few topics. This is all renewed a debate that we had earlier this year when President Biden first convened a commission to look at court reform, including the question of whether liberals should call on Congress to increase the number of justices. We debated this topic with the Northwestern School of Law, with some of the legal profession's biggest names, and we're going to go back to that debate right now. But before you hear the arguments, you can still cast your vote online at iq2us.org, online at iq2us.org. That's iq, the number two, us.org. Hi, everybody. I'm John Donvan. It is not the first time that court expansion has become part of our political discourse. Back in 1937, as many of us know, President Roosevelt tried to add a number of justices to support his New Deal program. Congress had to approve that expansion, and Congress did not approve that expansion. But the debate is back now. We are doing this in partnership with the Newt and Joe Minow debate series at Northwestern Pritzker School of Law. And it is time to meet our debaters. Arguing for the motion, we should expand the Supreme Court is Dahlia Lithwick, one of the nation's most prominent progressive legal commentators and Supreme Court analysts. Her partner, Tamara Brummer, a labor activist and now director of National Outreach for Demand Justice, one of the leading organizations advocating for court expansion and reform. Opposing them, Akhil Ridamar, a constitutional scholar, law professor, and author. He has been cited by Supreme Court justices in more than 40 cases, making him one of the most cited scholars of his generation. His partner, Carter Phillips, one of the most experienced Supreme Court and appellate lawyers in the country. This debate is conducted in partnership with the Newt and Joe Minow Debate Series at Northwestern Pritzker School of Law. All right, so here we all are on screen to get this debate going. I want to thank our four debaters for joining us for this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. It's great to be here. Thank you. Thanks. Okay, now we move on to round one. And round one is comprised of opening statements from each debater in turn. These statements will be four minutes each. Our motion, once again, is we should expand the Supreme Court. And here to speak first in support of the motion is Tamara Brummer. Tamara, the screen is all yours. Thank you so much, John. So our democracy is crumbling, and the Supreme Court is the tool of choice for dismantling it. To save our democracy, we must fix our broken Supreme Court by adding seats. I'm not an Ivy League-educated lawyer who dreamed of becoming a Supreme Court clerk, I'm not a constitutional law professor at an elite university, nor am I a reporter who has special access to oral arguments. By training, I'm a labor organizer. Organizing workers across the country, I've learned that if someone with more power than you is telling you to trust the system and keep your head down, they're probably doing well under the status quo and you're probably being screwed. It's increasingly the story of bosses and workers, thanks to decisions by the Republican majority on the Supreme Court. And today, it's also the story of the Supreme Court and millions of Americans. 
Let's start with how we got here. Building on decades of work, the Republican Party has created an illegitimate 6-3 supermajority on the court. First, Mitch McConnell and Republicans blocked President Obama's nomination of Merrick Garland. When Trump's nominee, Neil Gorsuch, proved too extreme to gain enough votes, Republicans changed the Senate rules to jam through his confirmation anyway. Then they rushed through Brett Kavanaugh despite credible allegations of sexual assault. Then they confirmed Amy Coney Barrett in the middle of a presidential election, breaking their own precedent. The Republican supermajority on the Supreme Court isn't only stolen and illegitimate, it's actively harmful to our rights and our democracy. So while 79% of Americans support the constitutional right to have an abortion, the Supreme Court allowed a Texas law that effectively ended Roe v. Wade in the state and has banned nearly 90% of all abortions there. A majority of Americans believe in expanding access to the ballot, but the Supreme Court has gutted the Voting Rights Act and year after year continues to assault on protections for voters, especially people of color. We need to expand the Supreme Court because Mitch McConnell's theft of the court's majority cannot stand. And we need to do it now because the rights and democracy of, of millions of Americans are at risk if we do not act quickly. Mitch McConnell stole a Supreme Court majority because he thought he could get away with it. And right now it looks like he's right. I expect you will hear from the other side today about the risk of expanding the court. Those are important questions and I look forward to addressing them. But the cost of inaction is a message to Republicans that they can cheat and steal without ever facing any consequences. Inaction already has allowed Republicans to expand their stolen majority to an illegitimate supermajority. And it's the Supreme Court that year after year is making it easier and easier for Donald Trump's Republican Party to entrench minority rule with voter suppression and partisan gerrymandering. There is no question the Supreme Court is working just fine for the people closest to it. The justices, the elite lawyers, and the law professors who win prestige by their proximity to the court. But in a democracy, the Supreme Court isn't supposed to work for a legal aristocracy. It's supposed to work for everyone. Far too often, when people like you and me say the Supreme Court is broken, the so-called experts, these lawyers, the law professors, the journalists, and even the justices themselves, tell us to trust the system. So when the justices gut decades-old protections for voters of color in the South, trust the system. When the justices kill a law that tries to, kill, to keep billionaires from buying elections, trust the system, y'all. When time and time again they side with corporations over workers, Trust the system. But here's the deal. The system I trust is democracy. And our Constitution sets up a clear way for the people's elected representatives in Congress to act to address this crisis by changing the number of seats on the Supreme Court as it has multiple times throughout history and to restore balance. So again, vote yes to expand the Supreme Court. Thank you, Tamara Brummer. Our next speaker will be speaking against the motion. Akhil Amar, the floor is yours. Thanks so much. So... Uh, the fundamental problem is not a constitutional problem. The number nine doesn't appear in the document. Um, we haven't always had nine justices. And the, the size of the court has changed uh, over the years for various reasons. So, so we, we could do it, but it would be a bad idea because when you change the size of the court for a purely partisan advantage, then what goes around comes around. And when the other side comes in, it's gonna to try to um, add, you, you add six, they add 12, then you add 18 and the thing spirals out of control. And, and that's just an obvious argument. Um, I, I'm sure it's occurred to, to all of you. So um, how do we think about that? So first, um, let me introduce myself since um, my uh, esteemed colleague um, talked about um, her background. Um, I don't, I'm a Democrat. I fiercely opposed um, uh, Donald Trump's election. Um, I also don't think that the system uh, uh, can never be improved in any way. Uh, some of you may have heard of um, the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, a way of getting direct election of the presidency without a constitutional amendment. I'm the co-inventor of that. Um, some of you may be opposed to the filibuster. I am, I'm actually uh, the architect, the father of the so-called nuclear option. And by the way, we Democrats did it first before Mitch McConnell did it. But for the Supreme Court, we did it, and rightly so, for um, Court of Appeals judges. 
Um, uh, I do believe that the Supreme Court can be improved in its structure. An, eight, an idea of justices serving basically on the front bench for 18 years and then doing a relaxed service thereafter, I think is actually the sweet spot of constitutional reform. I think it could actually get the support of Republicans and Democrats. It wouldn't unravel. Um, I testified about this before the Biden commission, and I think that's actually a much more realistic possibility than um, um, adding uh, a lot of seats um, in a way that will uh, cause the system to unravel. And actually, 18 years works particularly well um, with nine. Um, so the argument on the other side is basically the desperate times call for desperate measures, but we're not in desperate times because it's actually not true. The Supreme Court is broken, illegitimate basis of, uh, that there's been um, cheating and, and, and stealing going on. If there were, then maybe you should do something absolutely desperate. Although, beware, my friends, you could make the system worse rather than better. You know, uh, change isn't always for the good, as anyone who saw four years of Donald Trump should, should recognize. Um, I'm one of Merrick Garland's closer friends in the world. If you go to his office, you'll actually see copies of my book in, in, in his um, uh, uh, library and both of his daughters were actually my students. I wanted him confirmed, but that wasn't stolen. Um, we Democrats didn't control the Senate and you need both the president and the Senate to get stuff through. Um, and, and we thought we were gonna win the presidency in 2016. And if we had, then Merrick Garland would have been confirmed. Um, so um, uh, this, uh, Mitch McConnell did modify the filibuster rules for, for Neil Gorsuch. That's because we Democrats did it first for the DC circuit and I'm glad we did. So don't believe, it's simply not true as a matter of constitutional law that the system was rigged or stolen, that there was cheating going on, that's broken, um, and you could make it worse by doing this. I think you will. I think it would spiral out of control. And the one branch of government that is the least dysfunctional right now, less dysfunctional in the presidency, less dysfunctional in the House and the Senate, is the judiciary, the Supreme Court. So don't mess it up because you could break it and will break it if we spiral out of control as I fear we would with this proposal, which is why almost no serious Democrat, truthfully, um, on the commission or um, in Congress, um, the, the mainstream Democrats are, are not supporting this measure. I'm John Donvan. This is Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll hear more from our debaters right after this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Welcome back to Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. Let's get back to our debate. So you've heard the first two opening statements, and next up on the screen, uh, making a statement in support of the motion to expand the Supreme Court here is Dahlia Lithwick. Dahlia, the screen's yours. Thank you so much, John, and to my esteemed co-panelists. This is like watching the Harlem Globetrotters, and it's just a thrill to be here, um, you know, as I started to prep for this debate, it occurred to me that in fact, the Supreme Court was doing the bulk of the work for me in the last couple of weeks. Um, you know, you've just heard my opponents suggest that we are not currently in desperate times. I just want to flag for those of you who are not watching the court TikTok the way we are, that just in the last few weeks, the court reinstated a very controversial Remain in Mexico policy, made constitutionally permissible abortion impossible to achieve for 90% of the pregnant people in, in Texas. All that was done on its shadow docket. The court's been happy on the shadow docket to set aside an eviction moratorium, happy on its shadow docket to change COVID restrictions. Uh, this is all being done uh, 
unsigned. We don't quite know what the law is. And this is being done while Justices Barrett and Breyer are taking to the hustings. They're spending their time telling us how to think about the Supreme Court, instructing us, as Justice Barrett did just very recently, uh, sitting next to Mitch McConnell, that justices are apolitical and we need to think about them that way. And by the way, slagging the press as she did so, this all feels to me like something of a crisis. And I guess I slightly, slightly push back on the notion we're not in desperate times. I think the court has done an immense amount of mischief in secret and silently unexplained and unjustified, and at the same time are stomping around and telling us that we should treat them as though they're magic. So in my view, the case sort of made itself this summer. I could sit down now, but I just want to add two quick, quick observations to those really trenchant points raised by my colleague. And the first is, and I think she flicked at this, but I want to say it really explicitly, the Supreme Court is in essence, at this moment, a privilege machine. It is peopled with jurists who went largely to one of two law schools. They, uh, all of them came up through a very, very narrow system of how they were selected and what their prior job experience was. Amazingly, it's staffed by law clerks who are deeply connected to prominent lawyers, professors, oral advocates, and the justices themselves. Everyone in the family is bound up with the family. And I want to just pause to say I have inordinate respect for the institution of the court. I've been covering it for 20 years. I have, as my colleague tweaked me slightly, had access to the justices, to the cocktail parties. I've seen the magic happen with all the jazz hands that comes with it. And I am here to tell you that despite my immense respect for the court, it is absolutely not the case that the court looks like or responds to the exigent lives of Americans today. And so I just want to echo my partner. It cannot be the case that the only people entitled to have strong opinions on this matter are the people who have a vested interest in preserving the status quo. The second point I want to make, and this is really essential, is that I believe that at this moment in time, the court is actually a democracy-breaking machine, that we have seen the rise of authoritarianism, we have seen the rise of Republican uh, uh, state legislatures arrogating power to themselves, arrogating now the power to set aside election results, to change the way we count ballots. So much of this has been blessed by the Supreme Court. So much of it, from Brnovich to Shelby County, has been explicitly permitted. And so when you ask yourselves whether you want to vote with us or vote with our opposition, I would just suggest that whether we are in desperate times is in the eye of the beholder. And in my eyes, what the court has wrought and is poised to wreak upon democracy itself is not something that can wait for commissions and long, long discursions by very smart people who may and may not be impacted by the consequences. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dahlia Lithwick. Our final opening statement comes from Carter Phillips. Carter, it's your turn. Thank you, John. I appreciate it. It's uh, wonderful to be on this panel. Uh, as I suppose one of those who's been privileged uh, up to this point in my life, I, I will uh, plead guilty uh, to <laughs> to some fondness for how the court has operated in the past, and at least some sense that, uh, that there is something to be said for a, a structure that has been in place since 1869. And therefore, obviously, it would take at least a pretty clear piece of evidence that the, that, that system is fundamentally broken if you're going to make a very significant change in how the court operates. And I don't dispute what either... Dalio or Tamara have said about the problems that have arisen with the court, some decisions that people disagree with, some the shadow docket, the fact that Judge Garland did not end up on the Supreme Court. But those are not problems that are created by the number nine. Those are problems that are created because the Senate operated the way the Senate did. You can agree or disagree with it, but those are rules that apply across the board. The shadow docket is something that can be dealt with by Congress. It can force the court to go through a different procedure. It can limit uh, the authority of the court to act in a particular way if it chooses to do so. It seems to me that the problems that you identify are not problems that necessarily get fixed 
by simply adding four new justices. I don't I don't know what the argument is for doing that other than you don't like particular decisions. The downside, of course, of changing it to 13 justices is, at least as a practical matter, that's a very fundamental change in the dynamic of how that institution would operate. It's never had that many individuals on the court. It is candidly difficult enough as somebody who once upon a time clerked at that court and knows what it takes to get to five, and now you have to get to seven, and after you lose power in the next election and the Republicans come back and add two more to get to nine, you were talking about an extraordinarily complicated process. If we were sitting in a situation where the court was up against it in terms of being able to do the work, you might say, well, then let's bring in more bodies in order to achieve that. That's not the problem. Court's only deciding 70 cases this term compared to 155 to 160 40 years ago uh, when I was clerking. And so there's no real argument for increasing the numbers. What there are arguments about are for fixing problems directly if there are, in fact, problems. But adding four extra justices is not something that's going to move you uh, in that direction. And so what I would what I would urge the audience to realize is. Packing the court wasn't right in the 1930s. Packing the court is not right today. There are other solutions. I don't have any problem with term limits. I don't have any problem with other approaches to, to trying to rein in a court if people are concerned about it. You can even play with the court's jurisdiction to some extent. Um, but I don't think the answer is ever going to be just adding more bodies because that's a never-ending cycle. You can't stop that once you, once you go down that path, because you can't, with at least without a constitutional amendment, you're not going to be able to start throwing bodies off that court, given that they have life tenure. So it's a one-way ratchet. It's not the right answer to this problem. You should vote no against the resolution. Thank you very much, Carter Phillips. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. Now we move on to round two, and round two is a conversation among the four debaters. They can address questions to one another, but they'll also be taking questions from me. They can even break in on each other uh, if it feels like the right thing to do. But I want to just observe uh, what I heard in the opening statements. Um, as uh, Dahlia put it, uh, and this is true in a lot of the debates we do, we have a sort of eyes of the beholder situation. So the two debaters who are arguing that we should expand the Supreme Court are making a very strong case that the current court, and we're really talking about the current court, not the institution as has existed since it's had nine justices since the middle of the 19th century, but right now, 2021, the current court is a danger to democracy, that uh, it is breaking democracy, that the redress to that is to change the composition by adding people primarily because of the kinds of decisions, interactions, and some suggestions of internecine behavior that this court is undertaking at the present day. And that, that it's an emergency and that that's the quickest way to address the situation where the court is making decisions that they say are threatening to the democracy. Their opponents are saying, uh, there is really no emergency, that uh, no rules really were broken, that um, expanding the number nine would have unintended uh, but somewhat predictably negative consequences, such as starting a tit-for-tat race of expanding the court every time a new party takes over the White House and the Congress, and um, are, are also making the case that it would interfere with the dynamics of the course that a court that worked for uh, for, for more than a century, and it would take a long time to figure that out. And that that's not the institution that needs to be looked at in terms of who gets to be selected for the court. So there's a lot to, to talk about there, but I want to go back to, to you, Tamara, and ask you, since, since your opponents are making the case that your dissatisfaction, there seem to be saying, is essentially a partisan dissatisfaction. You don't like the decisions coming out of the court, you, you don't want any more of those types of decisions to be coming, so you want to add four justices. And, and my question is, I, I just want to make sure I'm not presuming, you would want to add four justices who would be likely to vote the other way. So you're, you're, looking, you're looking to add votes for the policies that you would prefer. Am I correct about that? Well, I want to. I thank you for that question. I would. I would back up a little bit and okay. say that the, the the point is not about we don't like the decisions that are coming out. It's not a. It's not about a partisan 
line, what I believe in is that the decisions that are coming out are a problem and are dismantling our democracy. And I think that that goes across party lines, a Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, whatever. You believe in the foundations of our democracy. The, the cases that the Supreme Court has decided on, the decisions that have come out, have dismantled these tools that have made our democracy more robust. So what we need to do is be able to add back those tools. And this current court and this configuration cannot do that. So, so let me circle back to the question, but do you want to add you want to add votes. I'm, I'm talking about justices in this case as being votes. Yes. Maybe that's a little mm. bit too crude, but, but, <laughs> but, but votes for a decision one way or the other, you would want to add votes that would not have allowed, for example, Citizens United or, or the, the, the recent decision that was made or non-decision that was made in regard to the Texas abortion bill. You would want to have counters to the, to the justices who voted we want balance. It's about balance to the seats, right? So I understand this thing about we want votes, right? There's a there's this court now. It has a, hoop, a super majority and it has a certain amount of votes. This is really about bringing back balance because the cases that we're seeing that are being decided that are ones that are chipping away at our democracy are coming across partisan lines, right? And so if that's how we appoint people to the court, then we need to make sure that the court is rebalanced so that we can have a fair shot and have fair discussion about the issues that are facing our democracy. Okay. And this current configuration doesn't allow for that. Okay, normally I go to the other side for an immediate response, but first I want to go to Dahlia and flesh out just one more part of, of, of your position that I'm, I think would be interested, interesting to people who are watching the debate, which is what, what is the profile of the four justices that you would want to add? What, what, what do we know about them? What would you want them to be? If I could just front load your question with an answer to a question that I think is buried in there. And sure. I know that's just, that's the most like- I'm not, I'm not sure what the question is, but I, I do want to hear it, so go for no, it. I, the first thing Carter and, and uh, Professor Amar will tell you, the first thing you learn in law school is don't fight the hypothetical and I'm about to fight it. But I think I just want to um, slightly shift your question and say this, we're positing what Tamara and I are suggesting as though court packing would be a thing that would begin tomorrow. And what I want to be really clear about, and I think it was embedded in what uh, both of us said in our openings, is that court packing, uh, the shift in the structure of the court, the expansion and contraction of the court happened in 2016 when a seat was held open for almost a year, happened again in 2020 when uh, a justice was rushed onto the court in violation of the Senate's own new rule about not seating someone in a pres presidential election. Um, so the idea that we want to do a new thing that has never been done before or not been done since the New Deal, I think is, is actually kind of predicated in a false assumption. I think we have to start with the assumption that the side of the, the size of the court, as as Akil said earlier, has never been sacrosanct. It's changed uh, uh, um, multiple times in history. It's been six. It's been ten. But that what we're not asking for is four liberal votes to do away with Citizens United or to reverse Brnovich. What we, I think, are saying is that there, there was a lengthy period of time when the Supreme Court did not have nine justices, it had eight, and a very lengthy, a very truncated period of time when it might have had eight, but suddenly had nine while voting had started in the election. So this isn't about, with all due respect to Carter, uh, you know, we don't like certain outcomes. This is a court that has functionally been packed. It's been packed for years. And now the question is, I think how we would reframe it is unpacking it. And unpacking it requires balance. It doesn't require a profile. I'm not asking for four Elena Kagans, although that might be fun. Uh, it would certainly mean great writing. But what I am saying is the presumption that what has happened since 2016, when Justice Scalia died, uh, wasn't court packing, I think sets this off on a really very false uh, basis. Okay, well, I did hear you say that you don't want to just appoint four liberal justices, and I hear what you're saying is that what you're trying to do is, is redress what you consider a sort of already terribly distorted series of actions that have resulted in the court we have now, that's where the emergency is. Okay, your two opponents have been very patient in my letting your side have two turns in a row, so I wanna to go to Akhil to let you respond to some of, uh, let him respond to some of what you're saying. So let's talk Turkey. Um, uh, this will not happen, and I'll give you four to one odds if you wanna take a vote, uh, make a bet. Um, no mainstream Democrat who matters from Joe Biden to any of the 
almost none of the, the Democratic senators is in favor of this. None of the Republican senators is in favor of this. So, so since it was mentioning about in the eye of the beholder, what we're getting is actually a very radical and extreme view. Um, and you're not going to, and, and even if it passed, somehow Joe Manchin is the swing voter in the Senate. He's not going to confirm the kind of folks that you would want to undo all this stuff. So it's just, let's be honest, this is pie in the sky craziness, truthfully, if we're being, if we're talking Turkey, just uh, about whether you're going to get what you want, um, which is... Well, you know, Kayla, 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 let, me, let me break in for a moment, because at, at Intelligence Squared, we, we, we tend to, to set aside arguments that rely on, this is what the public wants, or this is what might happen, when we're actually trying to look at the principle of the argument that are be, that's being made, and you got to it at the very end of your comment after you're talking about Joe right. Manchin, that it's that it's crazy. You know, you're calling it crazy as to be radically extreme. So right, and and so, there are. But look, because I believe in democracy, and I actually believe that there's often truth in the middle, and and this isn't in the middle, and and that's actually information and evidence about America and the system and where we are today. Here's more evidence about the system: no state supreme court has 13 or 17 or 29 or 137, which is what we're going to end up with if it spirals out of control. Um, even if you thought the times were desperate, the question is whether this actually improves the system or makes it worse. We believe on our side, it makes it worse. Um, and in fact, we think that there's a better way both uh, Carter and I, of fixing the thing, which would be 18 years, which actually is keyed to the number nine. And once you move off of nine, there's a relationship between 18 years um, and, and, and nine justices. There would be a new person every two years. So it makes it worse. You, you are brushing aside sort of the, the core of the argument they're making by just saying that it's crazy. And I want to... Because it is crazy. It is crazy. That's what, that's what I actually believe. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. This is a reminder to all of you that Intelligence Squared U.S. is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization. Our mission is to restore critical thinking and facts and reason and civility to American public discourse. We would love your support. Please visit www.intelligencesquaredus.org to join the debate and hear from both sides of every issue. More debate when we return. Welcome back to Intelligence Squared U.S. Let's get back to our debate. You're saying that these are not desperate times. Your opponents are saying this really is different in a desperate time. And Carter, you haven't had a crack at that yet, but I want to ask you again, before we get on to solutions and the number 18, et cetera, just to look at the merits of the argument, because I thought I heard you saying, you know what? The system isn't broken. The system worked. It had outcomes that the, that certain people don't like. But the solution is to is to is to win elections as opposed to try to do something to recompose the court. So I just wanted you to respond to the desperate times argument that there's something about this court that represents an emergency and, so, and, so and the, a kind of packing already. Right, John. So there are two things about this. First of all, right. I mean, I, I know that from Dahlia's perspective. Um, as, a, as a media person, you know, the focus is going to be on, on a handful of cases. And, and I understand that. But the reality is the Supreme Court doesn't decide just a handful of cases. It decides in good day, in good years, 80, 90 cases, of which Dahlia doesn't care about at least 85 of them. And it does an extraordinarily good job. And if you start to play with the system as it operates today, it will do a less effective job at the, at the run-of-the-mill kinds of cases. So that's one. That's the downside of, of that particular solution. But two, even with respect to the point of it, of it being broken, you know, it's a snapshot in time. I'm not saying that, that there aren't ways to improve it, but you're making a fundamental change in the institution, and you're going to have to show me more than that. Ultimately, you're not. You're just you're more, that. There's more there than that. You're just dissatisfied with a few outcomes in a few cases. Uh, you know, the truth is, the court has historically been anti-democratic. That's all. That's actually been a very good thing. Uh, and so, I don't think trying to make it more democratic, and, and that's with a little d, is 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 going to help. Is going to help it in terms of its overall mission and the role that it has to play. 
the end of the day, we're going to have to live with the fact that elections count. And if the wrong people get elected and they want to manipulate the court to some extent, they're going to have the opportunity to do that. Uh, the solution to that is over time, obviously, political winds change and that and, and there's a focus there as well. Um, but but even more fundamentally than that, the issues that are important will change. Uh, and what you really want are the nine sort of best people you can get to analyze these legal issues. I'm not saying that the background of these nine necessarily makes them the best for that. I mean, the court has historically had a broader. Tamara, you look like you're, you're, you're trying to jump in there. So why don't you go for it? No, I, I think, thank you, Carter. I, my question would be is like, you made this statement that elections matter, but we're seeing that the Supreme Court is chipping away at our ability to even vote in said elections. We're seeing that in gerrymandering. We're seeing that in the, in the pay to play in our politics. Elections do matter for all of us, but the way that the Supreme Court is acting right now, that it means that only a few of us get to participate in these elections. So then a handful of us get to vote then that handful gets to decide the the Supreme Court and, and everything else in our country. So there's this like small minority that holds a lot of the power that gets to dictate all these things because elections do matter, but you don't let everyone vote. So my question is, so then with that, then the question becomes, some cases the Supreme Court gets wrong, in some cases they quote unquote get right. How do we weigh the cases that they get wrong that have the most impact on most of us? Well, if I were, if I mean, obviously the, the the issues that have the most impact, or at least get the most publicity, obviously are, are worth focusing on. I, I don't dispute that. But the, the problem to me is most of those are still fixable by Congress. But the question becomes, that's very true. We'll pass another Voting Rights Act, right? We've watched this court strip away the Voting Rights Act that gave Black people the full franchise to vote. So democracy is new in our country, relatively, for most of us. You then just said, the Supreme Court has said that that's not an issue anymore. But we're seeing actively that states across the country are implementing anti-voter laws right now. And our, then we're supposed to go back to the same Supreme Court and be like, hey, 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 let's start over again. That's the question that we're up no, against. No, I think the question, I, well, one of the questions is going to be, which is the better institution to sort out these issues? Is it Congress or is it the court? And I think the court would probably say, look, if Congress wants to step in and exercise its um, Section 5, Article you know, 14th Amendment powers, that's clearly available to it. I think that that's just a privilege that most of us do not have. Like we can't afford to keep waiting for this other body that is the least democratic. We've all we all acknowledge that to keep deciding on the democracy of our country without even real checks and balances. Dahlia, By adding these, I, I'm sorry, Tamara. I, I saw Dahlia was trying to jump in. I want, just want to give her a shot. I just want to amplify something that Tamara is saying that I think is really important. I, I'm so glad that Carter makes the point that historically, you know, the court has this anti-majoritarian counter majoritarian checking function. And I think that's really true. And I think that we just tend to intuitively think that's a good thing. Uh, you know, we have a, a malapportioned Senate that also has a counter-majoritarian tendency. We have uh, the Electoral College that also functions to undermine majorities. Uh, we have the filibuster, as we've been discussing, that functions to undermine minor majorities. And I just want to be very, very clear. I think Tamara's point is, when you are talking about voting rights, and by the way, when you are talking about a Supreme Court that in the November election leading up to the 2020 election, some of those justices, sometimes in dicta, sometimes in footnote, were talking about throwing out validly cast ballots. That's suppressing the vote. And when the Supreme Court says, oh, voter fraud, this is a thing, you know, people are terrified of it, and there's no evidence of voter fraud, that's suppressing the vote. So I just want to be really clear that when we talk about all the counter-majoritarian checks that I've listed, they don't often help democracy. Typically, they have helped slaveholders and the wealthy. And when they're being deployed to do that, that's not democracy let me, let's, working. Let me bring in Akhil, please. So my opponents basically have done two things. They've changed the debate from whether we like the Supreme Court, and, and maybe we don't, to whether we should adopt a genuinely radical idea that might very well destroy the Supreme Court and the American system. And they change, that's not the topic. Yours is a very impressive audience, and I want them to keep the eye on the ball. ball. The question is not whether we like the current Supreme Court, the question is whether this radical idea 
is actually, which is the motion, is going to be adopted. And I'm going to show you it's radical by asking them some very simple questions. One, please name all the major political figures who support you on this topic. Does Joe Biden? Does Chuck Schumer? Um, does um, uh, Amy Klobuchar? Who are the people who actually count? And, and second, please name all the state Supreme Courts in America that have more than nine, if it's such a great idea, and show me all the states because America actually learns from states. This is a big idea of Louis Brandeis, states as laboratories of experimentation. Show me the states where this has been done um, and done well that, that give me reassurance that this actually would be a sensible uh, proposal. And that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. And here's where we are. We are about to hear brief closing statements from each debater in turn. These statements will be two minutes each. This is their last chance to try to persuade you to vote for their side, because right after this, you will be asked to vote for a second time. And again, your votes will decide our winner. So let's move on to round three and our closing statements. On the resolution, we should expand the Supreme Court, making her closing statement. Here is Dahlia Lithwick. Thank you so much to John and to my esteemed colleagues. This was bracing and um, incredibly, incredibly interesting. And my colleague and I have talked, I think, at great length about the perils of why not, the perils of wait and see, the perils of hoping this just works out and that vote suppression doesn't end the right to vote in this country in the coming years. The last thing I want to say, and I think this is really, really important, we think so much and have throughout this debate about the need for public confidence in the court, not just the pragmatic questions about, can you do it with 13 justices? Can you do it with, with too many justices? Maybe the workload isn't there, but public confidence. And I want to submit to you all today that public confidence isn't something that bounces back when the court intervenes days and weeks before the presidential election. Public confidence does not bounce back when women in Texas cannot terminate their pregnancies, although they're allowed to. Public confidence does not bounce back because the justices go on television and tell us that we have to believe that they're above politics. Public confidence is earned, and the court is doing a dismal, dismal job of earning our public confidence. And at minimum, I would urge you to vote for this resolution because to fail to have the conversation that we keep hearing is so pie in the sky is to absolutely exceed that business as usual is just fine with us. Business as usual is not okay. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Dahlia. And again, the resolution is we should expand the Supreme Court and here to make his closing statement against that resolution. Here once again is Akhil Reed Amar. Yes, that is the resolution. And they keep changing the topic to whether you like the Supreme Court, which is not the question. You can really dislike the Supreme Court and yet believe that this change will make things worse, which it will. Um, so, so the issue is not this, the resolution is not, do we love the current Supreme Court justices and in particular the six justices and the majority? The issue is whether this idea actually makes us better or worse as a constitutional system. And I say, oh, they haven't come close to showing you it makes it better. What they have done is given you a brilliant rhetorical tour de force. And I absolutely adore Dahlia's command of, of language. I, I love reading her stuff because she's so clever and so brilliant. You know, tit happens. What an amazing, you know, um, uh, thing to pull out of your hat. But she has another amazing phrase, you know, about unicorns and magic. But my friend, she and her colleague are the ones who have engaged in magical thinking because they're just magically assuming that they wave their, their wands, Wingardium Leviosa or something, and you get four of the justices that you would love now on the court with no repercussions. And that can't happen because the, the current just, uh, senators are actually in the middle, Joe Manchin. Um, and you, the, the justice, even if you could get this law through, you'd get justices that are very different than the ones that they think are just gonna magically undo all the bad things that have happened. What will happen is the system is likely to unravel because we won't get tit for tat. 
tit happens, we'll get double tit for tat, triple tit for tat, because that's what the Republicans will do if the, the, the fundamental rules that have been in place for a very long time are changed by our side. Thank you very much, Akhil. And our next speaker will be arguing again for the motion to expand the Supreme Court. Here is Tamara Brummer. I think that the biggest thing is that we're starting from two different starting points. Dahlia and I believe that this system is broken and the Supreme Court is a part of this broken system. When I was writing and thinking about this conversation, um, Nina Simone's Mississippi Goddamn was really ringing in my ear. And she wrote that song in 1963 in the aftermath of the 16th Street uh, bombing in uh, Birmingham where four little black girls were killed in a bombing. And then earlier that year, Megger Evers, a Mississippi civil rights activist, was murdered in front of his home. She wrote this song as a protest anthem to a movement and to a generation that was fighting for the fundamental right to be full citizens in this country. And while four little black girls were murdered by white supremacists, the powers that be told people that they should just go slow. You're being too radical. You want freedom? <laughs> That's absurd. Thankfully, in 1965, the United States got ourselves together and voted the Voting Rights Act. And so then there was full citizenship, I would say, for most, for many Americans. But in 2021, the Supreme Court has said once again, slow down. So here we are, we're facing very different Americans, America, excuse me, than our, my counterparts on the other side. They're arguing about how we need to uphold this institution. And what I'm telling you and what Dahlia is telling you and what millions of Americans are telling you is that the system is broken and that we have every right to fix it. And we can fix it by adding seats. And you know who can't wait for us to add seats or who can tell us that we're being too radical is that the people in Texas who no longer have access to an abortion, to the millions of Americans who are facing an eviction in the midst of a global pandemic, they cannot wait. They're not too radical for change. And so I implore you to vote yes, as seats to the Supreme Court, because our democracy demands it. And getting the last word in the debate proper with his argument against the resolution that we should expand the Supreme Court, here is Carter Phillips. Let me start off by, I do, I do agree. We probably come at this issue from very different vantage points. There's a part of me that thinks we wouldn't even be having this debate if Merrick Garland had ended up being confirmed on the Supreme Court, because even with the rest of the appointments that played through, there would be enough of a balance that a lot of the things that we're complaining about. So the idea that essentially one bad mistake uh, would cause us to revamp the entirety of the U.S. Supreme Court is, to my mind, uh, a bit of throwing out the, the baby with the bathwater. I just think I think that's the fundamental mistake here. And the other side of it is when you're talking about democracy being broken, I still think it is hard to imagine that the Supreme Court will be the, the ultimate solution to most problems with democracy. For better or worse, the Constitution puts that authority in the Congress and with the president, in part because they are supposed to be closer to the people. They are, in fact, elected by at least some portion of the people. And I realize you can game the system in ways that manipulate those outcomes. Um, but I don't think, again, that the answer to that is to change the fundamental approach of how the Supreme Court operates and to risk, I think Akil quite rightly says, is ultimately the destruction of that court as an institution. The notion that, that we are going to enhance public confidence in the Supreme Court by turning it into a ping pong match every two years or every four years seems to me to be completely uh, without, without <laughs> unacceptable. And so my hope is that uh, everyone would vote no on the idea of packing the court. Thank you, Carter Phillips. And that concludes round three of our Intelligence Squared US debate. And now it is time for our decisive second vote. Remember, it's the team that sways the most minds between the first and the second vote that we declare our winner. It's gonna work the same way as before. Go back to iq2us.org. You'll get the same choices as before, for, against, or undecided. And as I mentioned earlier, we're gonna be keeping this vote open for a week. And at the end of that week, we will announce the winner on our website, iq2us.org. That's so that many more members of the public can watch the debate, form their opinions on which side was most persuasive, and then vote just like you're doing now. Now, I want to say back to our four debaters. Um, 
I, I, I so appreciate and so congratulate you for the way that you conducted this debate. You, uh, there was obviously very, very sharp disagreement about the fundamental question um, and, and, and not a lot of common space on that. And yet you all addressed one another uh, civilly and with respect and with information, uh, sharing and swapping. You may even at the margins have persuaded each other that you were a little bit right about this or a little bit right about that. But it was that kind of conversation, and it's what we aspire to at Intelligence Squared. So I want to just personally, on behalf of our organization, thank all four of you for the risk of taking the risk of debating in public and, uh, and for doing it the way that you did it. So thank you all for joining us at Intelligence Squared. Real privilege, thank you. I also want to say this, I, I want to thank all of you who took the time to watch this debate. Uh, the fact that you're here, the fact that you're willing to listen to both sides, again, hits the very target that we set out to hit at Intelligence Squared, which is, is, is to get people to listen to each other, to hear each other by, by going through, uh, paradoxically, the exercise of a debate. We've been doing this since 2006. We've now done more than 200 debates, many of them, uh, most of them uh, as sharp and as focused as this one, and they're all available on our website. And I'd like you to encourage you to go uh, check them out on our website. We're also a nonprofit. We put these debates out for free to the world, and we could definitely use your support. And if you would like to support us again, go to our website, iq2us.org. I want to thank you, our audience, for tuning into this episode of Intelligence Squared. I hope that you enjoyed it just as much as we did. Intelligence Squared is a nonprofit generously funded by listeners like you and by the Rosencrantz Foundation. Claire Connor is our CEO. David Ariosto is head of editorial. Amy Kraft is chief of staff and leads production. And Shay O'Mara is our consulting producer. Jen Zelmer is our senior researcher. Damon Whittemore is our radio producer. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. And I'm your host... John Donvan. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you.